I'm here with Mark Lacido, who is a graduate of Duke University's Sanford School of Public Policy, where he focused on the intersection of technology and national security policy. Mark is also an alumnus of Norwich University. He is a, an active duty U.S. Army Chief Warrant Officer 5 and has served in the military and special operations forces for 22 years, specializing in strategy and policy, counterterrorism, irregular warfare, and intelligence operations. Thanks for joining us today, Mark. Yeah, Jeremy, thanks for having me. Really appreciate this. I guess the first question to start with is what was your path to the special operations community? What inspired you to end up there? Yeah, that's that's a long and storied question. But uh, I do want to say just before I get started, that thing that I say here is my own personal opinion. I'm here on my personal time and is not the opinion or of the Department of the Army or Department of Defense. So what was my path to soft in special operations? The most direct answer is that I was recruited out of my basic training. So I went directly into the 75th Range Regiment. It's the Army's elite infantry element for company size operations. And that really started my path. I realized that I was around like-minded individuals that had a passion and a drive for relentless excellence. And it's really where I wanted to be. I bounced in and out soft as I graduated in my career and I had to take positions of greater responsibility. But ultimately, I wanted to get back. I had a longing to be back with operators, to be back with people solving those core problems. And that's what's inspired me really over the last 12 years. I've been at United States Army Special Operations Command and, you know, what keeps me coming back to work every day is that we tackle the thorniest problems. We're thrown into uncertain environments. We're expected to take initiative in chaos. And success is not readily defined. It's really very little guidance that's given to you, a set of parameters, and you're told to go out and solve some of the nation's most difficult problems. And that that keeps me coming back to work every day. That sounds interesting. Sounds like startup life, actually. So as you think back, just what's the biggest thing that for people who are not familiar or not inside of that area, what were the biggest impressions that that you know, now as you're continuing on what may be next for you and your academic career and thinking about what comes after that, what distinctive elements do, do you do you take from your from your time in the soft community? Uh, yeah, I think two things come to mind. The first is how important people are. We have a couple of truisms that we have in soft. And the first is that people are more important than hardware. And that could be, you can replace that with software nowadays, or people are more important than AI. But the important thing is that you don't get anything done without people. I take a line from Jim Collins. It's about getting the right people on the bus, start with who, and then figure out what. And uh, we've been taught that if you select the right people, and put them in the best position to solve the problem, they will change the strategic outcome on the ground. And that's, uh, that's super important. And the second thing is that nothing happens because of one person are incredibly important. And I think the best way that we talk about that in SOF is that your proximity to the raid or to the target does not define your importance. The person who processes your pay is just as important as the person who is assaulting the target because all of those things work harmoniously together to make sure everyone's in the right mindset, that they have their eye on their specific piece of the pie, and teams are extremely important. So you, like many other people, as you're thinking about what's next, you decide that you're going to go study to, to better yourself. You pick and you decide to pick some no-name school, Cough, Cough, Duke, studying pu public policy, like a lot of you type A soft people. Why Duke? Why public policy? 
Yeah, just a quick story. I was in Afghanistan with General Miller and now General Jeffers. And I, General Jeffers was my boss at the time. And I told him, I said, hey, boss, I think I'm going to get out of the military. I'm going to go to law school. I want to do national security law. And he looked at me and he said, no, no, you're not. We've got other plans for you. And I had, throughout my career, I had been at the pointed end of the spear, a practitioner of policy, like taking policy and putting it into real terms forward. And I use the word frustration, but I don't mean that pejoratively. I just mean that there are kinks and hiccups in the process that make it difficult for someone at the application end of policy to understand all of the intricacies that go into policy formation. So I wanted to understand that. And that's why I wanted to go into policy. Um, and uh, do rotations in, at, up at the Pentagon in, in the Office of Secretary of Defense. But tech and national security became important to me as I matriculated into Duke. I took a stock assessment of what I was good at. I was good at national security. I understood the national security apparatus. What I didn't understand so well was this uh, application of technology in national security and how we look at and address problems in that in that Venn diagram where they overlap. And with the guidance of my faculty advisor, I took a concentration in technology. It's definitely an area that's changing fast. And when you think about irregularity, that's definitely a place where there's a lot of irregularity in terms of economics and the same mindset for trying to look for unfair advantages, uncommon advantages. It's probably something that you're seeing quite a bit in technology land in terms of trying to look for advantages and trying to exploit those advantages. Yeah. So I think it was Admiral McRaven that said that the real principle of special operations is applying our superior capability against the enemy's strategic vulnerability at a time and place of our choosing. Unless that's becoming about eye to eye or face to face contact and more it's coming to drones and smart laser guided small munitions to unmanned vehicles. But now it's becoming about AI and it's becoming about how quickly we can adjust and pivot to the terms in the battle space. And that's what wins wars is the the the, the side that can adjust to what's going on in the battle space. And today that's technology will win the next war. Yeah, and you certainly have kicked off some thinking around this, and you've done some, some writing about this. You had an article that was in Real Clear Defense around the, the state of AI and great power competition that's going on. And just curious your, if you could share some of the reflections that you have from that, and even that's, at this point, four months old, and also you've learned since then. Yeah, sure. So that, that article, which is the great power art, artificial intelligence competition piece. It was one article in a series and it, there were three articles. So in the military, and this might not be initially understood outside of the military, but we look at warfare in, at three different levels. So there's the tactical level. That's where you're actually engaged with the enemy. There's the operational level. That's who's making decisions of where to apply your forces. And then there's the strategic level. And that's who's turning policy into action or who's driving policy. You can think about those in strategic terms for ends, ways, and means. You can think about those in a number of different ways. But I wrote three different articles to capture the essence of those three different levels of warfare. The first was to talk about how commanders can think about artificial intelligence when they're being sold a capability or they're being briefed a capability from a startup company. And what I didn't know at the time, and it's called the Commander's AI Smart Card. 
What I didn't know at the time is that AI smart card actually works for startups. If you're gonna, if the commander is gonna use it to ask questions of the startup, should be able to use it to ask questions of the commander. What's your use case? What do you envision for your DevSecOps pipeline? What do you envision for your testing environment? What is the accuracy that you want the AI system to achieve? So there's a bunch of level questions there. I wrote a piece for the operational level. Uh, it was in War on the Rocks. It was DOD's looming AI winter. And really the essence of that article is that our challenges in AI won't be a tech problem in the coming years. It'll be a people problem. We've got problems surrounding AI expertise or rather getting the right people in to the department to employ AI. It'll be a bureaucracy problem. We've discussed challenges around the Packard Commission, around policy that stymies innovation. There's a democratization problem, which is where I am. I ask myself, what can I do better today that I couldn't do yesterday because of AI? And those answers are very limited, especially when you're in the team room with operators. What can we do better today? Not a whole lot. The potential is, is there. And then there's the integration problem. How do you integrate AI these next-gen systems into our legacy systems so that we can fully harness the power of AI. And that's a challenge at the operational level because you're talking about the federal acquisition, you're talking about how we buy and renew software, you're talking about programs of record, huge things, Abrams tanks and battleships, how do you put AI into that without uh, starting with AI in mind. And then this piece on great power AI competition was really the strategic look. And the way I like to think about this is that we've got a problem around our ends, ways, and means, the strategic, the functions of, of strategy or grand strategy, really. And in AI competition, I translate those to capital, focus, and strategy. We've got a ton, we've got a ton of capital, but in the federal government, we lack focus and we lack a coherent strategy to put that capital to use. And what I end up suggesting is that we establish a national security investment fund in order to harness that capital, provide it some focus, give it a grand strategy that really provides a unity of effort in the financial national instrument of power, something we don't talk about a lot. We talk about diplomacy, we talk about the military. This is an effort to harness the financial national instrument of power to get after competition. And I use AI as a landscape or the fora for that discussion to happen in that article. And we'll go back to the capital flows, but you talked about the people being a real important dynamic. And I'm just wondering if in your studies and your thinking, how you would compare AI capabilities and collaboration, I think principally in the United States, our allies, China. How is the collaboration different? And where are the advantages that we have? Where are the advantages that, that we don't have? And I was just wondering if you could expand on things that things to be optimistic about and also areas of concern that we should be trying to cover off on. Yeah. So I think a, a mentor of mine, I mean, Mac Thornberry a while ago, and he actually just said something that brought this into focus is that China is going to do well in things that do well centralized. We are going to do well in things that are decentralized. I think one of the things that we do really well or we're learning to do when it comes to collaboration is what I would call a field to learn strategy, where not only are we fielding technology to learn from it quickly, but we're fielding engineers 
down to the users. There, we're closing the gap between the use case and the operator and the engineer and the solution. So one of the things that we've learned over time is that the requirements process that we go through in the military does not work fast enough to adjust and pivot to technology needs. What would typically happen is we'd identify a problem on the battlefield, we'd write a requirement, that requirement would go through the approval process, and then somewhere in the halls of the Pentagon, a project team would develop a solution, and there would be very little contact between the users and that solutions team. And then finally, when they were done and they had reached a, some sort of viable product, they chuck it over the wall and we get it. And we've either forgotten that we wrote the requirement because we've dealt with 12 other crises by that time, or the, the tech that is delivered doesn't solve the problem anymore because the battlefield has changed so rapidly. And so I think where we're going to succeed is in our decentralized approach that we're beginning to take with fielding to learn. And I think we're doing that pretty well right now. Oh, it's good to hear. Go, going back to the financial flows, your recommendation of some type of strategic fund, you wrote this in the fall and then sometime in the, just only a couple months later, the, it was announced about the Office of Strategic Capital. And just curious, your reflections on that. It seems like that's going in, the, in that type of direction. Yeah, I think that's a very positive trend. I was excited to see the Office of Strategic Capital stood up. I, the director there has a very tough road. We've seen a lot of these tools come into play. We've got the trusted capital marketplace that verifies the sources of capital. We've got the Defense Innovation Unit, which is working there at the Pentagon. And then now we've got the Office of Strategic Capital working at the Pentagon. And I think that all of that is trending positively. What I would say is that that all exists within the military instrument of national power. And not it's not a whole of government approach. And to succeed when we're competing against China, when we're competing against Russia, we have to understand that they're taking a whole of society approach. They're going beyond government simply because their form of government allows them to do that. Now, I think that democracy is a real strength here. And if we build some sort of apparatus, and what I would suggest is the National Investment, National Security Investment Fund, which is in the article I described, the board of advisors being half commercial, half government, and they're spread throughout the cabinet. And that, that allows us to get multiple looks from different instruments of power. I think that's what I would say is the, the what's left undone right? Is we're strictly thinking of this in military terms. Yeah. As you think of how to allow for innovation to take place with failure, innovation and discovery and the changing mission set from a more counterterrorism to a more great power conflict, there, there's so much transition that's taking place and doing that in the context of lots of AI and cyber and bioregenerative concepts that, that are just emerging. How do you think we can have more faith in institutions to take risks, to think of tackling challenges that have a sense of boldness to them that may fail? And if you were in that, in any of those offices or, or those boards of advisors, what are the types of things that, that you would encourage your stakeholders in the broader community to say, hey, give us a chance give us a break, let us take some chances. How do you think that there can be room to experiment and try things out? Yeah, I think storytelling is super important. And particularly from the military, storytelling is something that we don't do very well. But a lot of times when our failures come out, 
they come out as, and this isn't the right word, but I'd say a scandal, right? Our successes are secret, our failures are public, and we don't do very well storytelling. So I think storytelling is something we could get better at because that puts our endeavors in the public space. It gathers public support and then success becomes everyone's success, but failure becomes not tolerated, acceptable in the pursuit of success. Something that I think is super important when it comes to storytelling is the lexicon that we use. So often in the military, we use very violent terminology. If you take a look at the national defense strategy, it talks about the lethality of the joint force. It talks about being able to overwhelm the enemy with overwhelming power, firepower, I think it mentions. When you actually decrypt the national defense strategy, I think you'll find that what it's actually talking about in strict deterrence theory is that if we're able to outpace our enemy, we can avoid violence, we can avoid conflict. And I think that needs to be front and center and we've got to change our lexicon. And I think that would actually make those failures a little bit more acceptable, a little more palatable if we were all using a common vernacular. What's your next article or your next articles going to explore? Any topic ideas that you've, you've come to? Yeah, I just had an article published yesterday and it talks about, the title is A New Cyber Strategy to Restore Civil Military Normalcy. And what the article does is it, it uses Milton Friedman's analogy of a fool in the shower, which is an analogy that as you're turning hot water, the water doesn't adjust immediately. So you keep turning it. And then at the end of the day, you get scalded by this hot water that makes its way through the pipes. So I take a look at cyber policy from 2001 to current and my hypothesis was that it has been over-militarized and that civilian oversight has been marginalized at the expense of speed because we think that speed is our best ally in cyberspace, which I'm not saying it isn't, it is. And at the end, I argue for a bit of normalcy in civil relations using Biden, President Biden's national security strategy and a return to tech diplomacy as a way to address digital challenges with China and Russia. Oh, interesting. Look forward to reading that. Transitioning to you personally, you're in the process or transitioning from your active duty responsibilities. How Walk us through how you thought of making that transition, people that you talked to, things that you learned along the way to make for a better, and you're still going through, but to make that process as instructive and as helpful for you and your soul searching for what's next. Yeah, I think it started. it started in grad school when I was able to pick my head up and look around. In the military, we're often, we're head down, we're grinding. We call it rowing. We row as hard as we can to make that machine move forward. But when I was in grad school, I got to pick my head up. My professors at Duke, they were practitioners. And I got to see that being in the military is not the only way to provide a public service. There are private industry components and sectors that I didn't know about that were doing things for the military that are just phenomenal and astounding that there are civilian policy think tanks that are achieving advocacy for things that we've asked for in the military and doing it with some success and regularity. So it started there opening my aperture that just being in a uniform is not the only way to serve. I reached a pinnacle in my career. I'm at 22 years. I'm a chief warrant officer five. I have been some prestigious organizations with some great people. And I want to keep doing that as I take the uniform off and put a suit or board shorts on, whichever one, I'm not sure. But I want to keep the mission in mind 
And I want to serve with people that really care about furthering security, furthering innovation. I think those two things go hand in hand. So it really returns back to people and teams. And that's where I'm at right now, trying to find my next team with the right people. Awesome. We wish you luck, Mark. And good luck on your journeys and excited to see where you end up in three, five and years and beyond. Yeah, no, I look forward to it too. Thanks for having me today. This is, it's been a great conversation. Thank you for listening to the Securing Our Future podcast by New North Ventures, hosted by Jeremy Hitchcock. If you would like to learn more about how we are accelerating innovation through collaboration of the commercial and national security sectors, please subscribe to our newsletter at securingourfuture.us.